The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're going to be talking this morning, seeking to answer the question specifically, who is Yeshua? Now, in Matthew's Gospel, we find the most important question you'll ever face is the question that Yeshua asked his disciples. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, do you realize that your eternal destiny depends on how you answer that question? A correct belief in Yeshua is what separates the saved from the damned. It's a question that Yeshua answers for us in our text for this morning, and He he continues to hammer this throughout this Gospel, so hopefully we're starting to get it, and uh, and we'll understand what He's got to say here. Alright, we're working our way through the through the 8th chapter of this 4th Gospel, and if you remember the context of chapter 7 and 8 is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, during the intertestamental period, um, they came up with two major rituals that were added to this feast. You're not going to find them in the Scripture. You're not going to find them in Leviticus 23 or the other texts that talk about the feast. But they were added. But they were very important. There was One was a procession where they would take a pitcher of water and they would go to the altar and they would pour out as a water libation before the Lord. And there was also a special fire ceremony involving lighting of huge menorahs in the court of the women. Now, both light and water played an important part in the symbolism of this feast. Now, the water ceremonies commemorated the water that God provided from a rock for Israel in the wilderness. And during the ceremony, Yeshua comes to the point of the water libation and He shouts out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. So in this, Yeshua is claiming to be the true rock of the wilderness who provided eternal life to all who come to Him. And that's what Paul said. He, Christ, was that rock. Now, in conjunction with the fire ceremony that remembered God's presence in the pillar of fire in the wilderness, Yeshua proclaims, I am the light of the world. He who follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And here He is claiming to be the light of the glory of God. And these are outstanding claims. I mean, why would anybody believe this Jewish rabbi making these claims. Here's this guy, he stands up and he makes these incredible claims at the feast. Why would anybody believe him? Why would they just not write him off as a lunatic? That's a question. Why? Okay, thanks. Alright, listen. By the time this dialogue takes place, Yeshua had been ministering for three years. Alright? And these statements that he's making are coming from a man who calmed the sea, who healed the lame, who raised the dead, who fed thousands. I mean, when people can do something like that, you want to pay attention to what they have to say. So it wasn't just this guy standing up making some outrageous claims. They knew him. Everyone knew of Yeshua by this time. Three years. In response to Yeshua's invitation to follow Him as the light of the world, the Jewish leaders are infuriated. I mean, He's taking the spotlight off of them. So they are angry. Alright? And all they want to do is kill Him. Verse 20, we, we closed with this last week. These words He spoke in the treasury as He taught in the temple And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Alright, he spoke these words in the treasury. The treasury was in the court of the women, which was very close to the hall where the Sanhedrin met. So he's basically right outside their door teaching, and they're just infuriated, but they can't do anything about it. It says no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. The hour that had been appointed by the Father for His glorification, for His return to the Father, hadn't arrived yet. And they wanted to seize Him and kill Him, but they couldn't. Because in God's sovereign plan, He wasn't to die then, 
He would die in six months. This is six months prior to the cross. Having been rejected by many as the true light, Yeshua now issues a strong warning. And He says, Then He said to them, I go away, and you will seek Me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, the Greek word again here is the word palin, which means it indicates a pause. In other words, there's kind of a pause, a break in the argument here, but not a significant break. So it seems that what follows here is a continuation of his teaching in the court of the women in the temple. He's still in that environment. It's still the last day of the great feast, and he's continuing this dialogue with them. He says, I go away, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, does that sound familiar? It should, because he said it recently in chapter 7. In 7 he says, I go to him who sent me. You'll seek me, or am you cannot come. In our text, he says, I go away. You'll seek me where I'm going. You cannot come. He's, he's repeating this same idea, and he does this over and over to try to get their attention. When he says, I go away, he's saying, I'm going to heaven. I came from heaven. I'm going back to heaven. They couldn't come because of their unsaved condition. You will never go to heaven, he's telling them. Heaven is for those who believe. And they were not believers. No one else. Heaven is not for everybody. I don't care what you hear on the news. I don't care what these preachers tell you. It's not for everybody. It's only for those who trust in Yahweh. Those who put their faith in Christ. He says, you will seek me. Now, I don't think that he's saying here to these Jewish leaders, at some point you're going to decide that who, who I really am and you're going to start looking for me. That's not you know what they're saying. He's saying, you're going to continue to seek the Messiah. The Messiah you want, alright? They want one that will free them from the power of Rome. They want one that will provide a physical utopia. You'll consider to, you'll continue to seek Him. You'll go on seeking Him, but you'll never find Him because I'm Him and you reject me. I'm the only Messiah there is. So you'll seek me, but He says, you're going to die in your sins. This is something you will never hear Joel Olstein say. Okay? He doesn't like the word sin. It's not very positive. It's not very uplifting. But Yeshua is not afraid to say it. Okay, Yeshua is not trying to build a crowd. He's not trying to make everyone feel good. He's trying to present the gospel. All right. Now, who is Yeshua talking to here? Who is he saying they will die in their sins? Well, he's primarily dealing with the Jewish leaders here. Those who thought they were the representatives of God. So he's talking to the people here, you know, we're, we're the God's authorities. And three times he tells them in this text, you will die in your sins. In John 7.34, Yeshua said, you will seek me and you won't find me. In our text, he says, you'll seek me and you'll die in your sins. To not find Yeshua is to die in your sins. He's offered living water. He's offered the light of life. And if people refuse the gift of eternal life, they'll die in their sin. Everybody has to either receive Him or die in their sins. Now he says, you will die in your sin. The word sin here is singular. And I think it's singular because I think for Lazarus, the ultimate sin, the sin that matters, is not believing in Yeshua. If you don't believe, that is basically the unpardonable sin. And someone's bound to ask, well, what about the unpardonable sin? Couldn't somebody have committed the unpardonable sin and then not go to heaven? And, and let's look at Mark 3, 29. This is where it comes from. It says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. <laughs> All right, so they never have forgiveness. So this is the unpardonable sin. And this has caused a lot of Christians... Unnecessary anxiety. I mean, can you imagine being a Christian and feeling like you've committed the unpardonable sin? I'm not sure what it is, but I might have done it. You know? And you're just miserable because you're like, I can't be forgiven of that. And I've had people come to me concerned and say, I'm just worried that I committed the unpardonable sin. And I just laugh and I say, you didn't. And they say, how do you know that? And I said, because the only people who could commit this sin that they're talking about were people who lived when Yeshua walked the earth. 
And they saw His power. They saw Him doing things and they attributed His power to the devil and not to the Lord. Okay? You're rejecting the Son of God. But I'll tell you what the unpardonable sin is, people. It's to reject the Son of God. It's to not believe in Christ. That is the only sin that is unpardonable. It's the only sin that can be committed today that is unpardonable is to reject the sin. Any sin that you've done can be forgiven and has been forgiven if you're a believer. But if someone denies the person and work of Yeshua, there's no means by which God can forgive them. You know, it's not like later on after you die, God says, well, okay, you were a nice person. Even though you didn't believe, we'll work something out. No, that's not it at all, all right? He says, he never has forgiveness. All right, now because they have denied the only way of salvation, that's unforgivable. It's unpardonable. To deny that He is the Christ. To reject Yeshua as Savior is to die in your sin. It says in verse 22, So the Jews were saying, Surely He'll not kill Himself, will He? Since He says where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, I think you know this by now, but when you see the word Jews in this Gospel, it's primarily referring to the Jewish leaders, to the scribes and the Pharisees. But it embraces all the people who follow their pattern their religious system. It's those who are locked into that system of the scribes and Pharisees. Those that are opposed to Christ. And the question is constructed in the Greek in such a way as to show that the author assumed the answer to be no. No, he won't kill himself. As a matter of fact, it's the Jews who are going to kill him. Alright? So Yeshua's adversaries presume, presume that uh, they're going to heaven. Alright, that's their basic position. We're going to heaven. You're saying where you're going, we cannot come. So, I guess you're going to kill yourself and go to Haiti. That's their thinking, alright? Now, just from Josephus, the Jewish historian, we learned that suicide condemned one to the lowest parts of Hades. Alright, that's something you don't do. So, their question apparently indicates that this is where they thought Yeshua would be. Well, he must be going to kill himself. And he's going to Haiti, so yeah, we can't go there because we're going to heaven. So here Yeshua's hearers wondered if he was speaking about taking his own life. That's what they're thinking. Now in seven, chapter 7, 34 and 35, they wondered when he talked about going away. If you remember back from that chapter, he said the same thing. I'm going away. And they wondered, well, is he going to go to the Gentiles? Remember that? In both cases... They didn't grasp what Yeshua was speaking spiritually rather than physically. They didn't get that. And in both cases, they ironically reveal a truth. Because in chapter 7, they foretell the Gentile mission. Is he going to go to the Gentiles? Yeah, the apostles and the church are going to carry on the mission to the Gentiles. Yeah, that's he's going to do that after his death. And in chapter 8, Yeshua's departure would involve his death. Not a suicide, but a sacrifice for sin. So their words are kind of an ironic prophecy about the Gentile mission and about Yeshua's death. They thought he may kill himself. And Yeshua does say in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So he's going to get his life. He's going to offer himself as a sacrifice. It's not suicide in the sense of that term suicide, but he's going to give himself to death. But it's in order that he might be a ransom for many. He's paying a sin debt for those who need that payment. Now John 8.23 says, And he was saying to them, You're from below. I'm from above. You're of this world. I am not of this world. Now, you get the contrast here. Heaven and earth. He explained their reason for misunderstanding him as being traceable to their origin. Here's the problem. I'm from God. I'm from above. You're from below. The contrast here is between heaven where Yeshua is from and earth where His opponents are from. The Jews can't follow Him because he, they belong to two fundamentally different worlds. Understanding Yeshua's meaning, if you're going to understand what He's saying, we've got to go back to John chapter 3 where He said you've got to have a birth from above. But you're from below. And unless you're born from above... You can't perceive the kingdom of God. You're not going to get it. Now, the word world here that he uses is cosmos. 
And we see here the most negative meaning of it so far in this Gospel. It increasingly, in this Gospel, will come to mean all that is arrayed against Yeshua. Alright? He uses the word to describe humankind living their lives out without any regard for God. Notice what he says in his prayer in John chapter 17. I have given them your words, he's talking about his disciples, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So that's that world system, that anti-God system. He says, they're not of it. And he says it again, he says, they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. So my disciples, they're not part of this world, neither am I, but you are, and that's why you can't get what I'm saying. Believers, we're not of this world. And although at times it may look like some believers are really part of it, we are not. Paul says to the Philippians in 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we belong. That's where that's our citizenship. We are from above. Now being from below or of this world means that you die in your sins. And it's because they have not been born from above that they will die in their sins. Now, I want you to see verse 24. This is such an important verse, I think. He says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. The word sin, as I said, is singular in verse 21. And the first use here is singular, and the second one is in the plural form. Sin is to refuse to believe in Yeshua, and therefore to refuse life itself. You just don't believe. Now, the pronoun he is not in this text. Okay? It's added by the translators. The text says this, unless you believe that I am. Well, that I am what? What is, what is he saying here? Do you get what he's saying? Hopefully by now you get the idea I am is kind of significant. I am what? What do you mean I am? He is saying, I'm Yahweh. Unless you believe that I'm Yahweh, you'll die in your sins. That's what they're to believe. The conditional clause provides the proper object of faith. He says, if you don't believe that in the Greek it's ego imi. And we have seen this phrase ego imi before. It was used in John 6.35 and John 8.12 with a predicate where he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. We also seen its use without a predicate, and we're gonna, he uses it more, he uses it seven times in this gospel with a predicate. But he uses it without too, we saw that in 620 where he had storm, calmed the storm on the sea, and he tells the disciples, I am! Fear not. What do you mean you am? See, we're scratching our heads saying, you are what? They understood what he was saying. He is claiming to be I am. He is asserting equality with Yahweh, who was revealed as the I am that I am, the self-existent eternal God. Now, you know, the scholars want to argue here, is this a reference to Exodus or is this a reference to Isaiah? And I think the answer is simply yes. Yes, but I think we go back to Exodus and we start there. In Exodus 3, this is God's encounter with Moses in the burning bush. You know, Moses stops because this bush is on fire and it's not burning up and he sees the strange sight, what's going on? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. Because Moses is saying like, well Lord, if I go, who shall I tell him sent me? Who am I going to represent? I am who I am. In the Hebrew, this is Ehiah Asher Ehiah. And it means, I am that which exists. Now, the root of Ehiah is Haya, which means to be or I exist. So Elohim tells Moses his name is Ehiah. But look at the next verse. Verse 15. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, the Elohim of Jacob, has sent me to you. 
This is my name. He says, tell him Yahweh sent you. And then he says, this is my name forever. This is my memorial name. I want you to know this. So Elohim again gives his name to Moses, but this time it's Yahweh. Now these two names, Yahweh and Ahia, are related. Alright? Yahweh is and Ahia is. Ahia means I exist, I will exist, I am. Yahweh means He exists. He will exist, He is. Now here's what's interesting. If Yahweh is a causative verb, it would mean He causes to exist. So either way, He exists, and you know, they could get both ways. Okay, who should I tell Him sent me? The one who exists, the one who causes to exist. Alright, and we'll see this connection when we look at Isaiah in a minute, that the fact he causes to exist. Both these names are related to each other. They're both conveying the idea that Yahweh is the self-existent God who causes things, all things to exist. Now, I think that he's going back to this reference here. When they says, I am, I think the Jew's mind would automatically run back here to this confrontation with God and Moses and understand that what's happening here. But the prophets picked this up, you know, guided by the Holy Spirit. They picked this up, and Isaiah particularly. And several times he speaks about the God who called to minister to him as I am. In Isaiah 41.4, who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, am the first, and with the last, I am he. So he says, it's Yahweh, I'm he. Now, in the Hebrew, Yahweh discloses himself in the repeated declaration, I am he. In this expression, in the Septuagint, when the Greek translators translated this, they consistently rendered it by ego imi. The same formula we see in John. I am. Now, in Isaiah 43.10 is especially close to what scholars call Johannian language. So, when you look at Isaiah 43.10, it sounds a lot like what we see Yeshua saying in our chapter in John, he says, you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed. There will be none after me. So he declares his name. I'm Yahweh. And you need to believe that I am. Now, the Greek Old Testament contains this purpose clause in order that you may know and believe and understand that I am. Ego, me. It's the combination of the verb believe with the use of ego, me in Isaiah 43.10 that causes scholars to believe that this is what's on Yeshua's mind when He says this to them. Unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. you got to believe that I am God. Now the last part of Isaiah 43 seems to be based on Exodus 3.14. Before me there was no God formed. There'll be none after me. I'm the self-existent one. Anything that is, I caused it to exist. Now the unique and here important part, I think, is, uh, let's look at verse 11. He says, I, even I, am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. I can see how they would go back to this text in Isaiah and think that this is where he's coming. And I think, obviously, this is on his mind. This had to be on their mind. He's claiming to save them from their sins. And there's no Savior besides Yahweh. And yet, Yeshua is claiming to be a Savior. Doesn't that make him mad? Yeah, it makes him really mad. But Yeshua is simply saying, I'm Yahweh. There is no Savior besides me. In verse 12, he says, It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there is no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and I am Elohim. Now the point of Isaiah 43, 10-12 is that I am is a God of salvation. And this appears to be Yeshua's point in verse 24 here. As long as the Jews refuse to come to faith in I Am, the one who saves His people, they're going to die in their sin. Now in Isaiah, the context demands that I Am He means I Am the same. I Am forever the same. I Am Yahweh. And this is a direct allusion back to 
Exodus 3.14. That's why I said they're both, they're both in the mind, I think, of Yeshua and the people. When he's speaking these, he's connecting these together. They're both just claiming, Yahweh is I am. Now, for others to apply this title to themselves would have been considered blasphemous. I mean, you can't say, you, I am. Look at uh, Isaiah 47, 8. Now then, hear this, you sensual ones who dwell securely, who says in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. I will not sit as a widow, nor have loss of children. Now, verse 11 tells us what happens to those who make this claim to be I am. Verse 11 says, But evil will come upon you, which you will not know, to charm away. And disaster will fall on you, for which you cannot atone. And destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. So you make this claim, you're going to be judged because of it. Because there's only one I am. So Yeshua says here, unless you believe. Believe what? That I am. You die in your sins. So to apply these words to himself, he's saying, I'm the only Savior. When Yeshua tells the Pharisees who knew Isaiah well, when he says, I am, when they knew this Exodus passage using the same phrase that the Lord repeatedly used, he is claiming to be the eternal God. Again, that's quite a claim, people. But remember, for three years, they've seen demonstrations that they don't explain it, you know? And that's why... Nicodemus says, we know you came from God because no one can do the things you do unless God sent him. So Nicodemus, yeah, obviously God's involved with it. He's saying, God doesn't just involve I am God. Now that would have really pushed him. But you got to understand that the Jews in the Second Temple period believed that there were two Yahwehs because they knew their Scriptures and they knew they had the angel of Yahweh, and then you had Yahweh, and you had both in the same passages many times. So they had this concept that there were two powers in heaven. And now Yeshua shows up and He says, I'm Yahweh! And they should have got it. And after Yeshua, the Jews changed all their exegesis to do away with the second power in heaven because they knew that Christ was claiming that claim. So they made some great changes after Yeshua's day. But up to that time, he, he's claiming to be the second power. And here's what we have to understand. Here's what we got to grasp today. Yeshua is Yahweh. To deny the deity of Christ is to deny the fact that He is God in the flesh. That is to die in your sins. Unless you believe that Yeshua is God, you'll die in your sins. Does that sound too strong? Well, that's what He says. That's what Yeshua says. The truth is that Yeshua's Yahweh is taught all through the Scripture. Both Testaments lay this out very clearly. Let's go back to the very first verse of this Gospel. All right, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This statement couldn't be much clearer, right? In fact, those four Greek words may be the clearest declaration of the deity of Christ in all Scripture. The Greek verb here, was, is imi, and it means to be, to exist. And it suggests a continued existence. So the Word always existed with Yahweh. He's not a created being. He didn't come into existence. He always was. And Lazarus does not say the Word was divine. Or the Word was like God. He makes the bold statement, the Word was God, and He leaves no room for anyone to see Yeshua as any less than God in any way, shape, or form. John Phillips writes this, that this, in His essence, in what He actually is, in His nature, person, and personality, in His attributes and character, Jesus is all that God is. All the essential characteristics of deity are His. The Word is Yahweh. Yeshua is God in a body, nothing less. The full manifestation of deity, Christ exemplified God to us. And so, the very beginning, Lazarus starts out laying it down, and I want you to understand, I'm talking about God embodied. It's at this point that Yeshua is Yahweh, 
that the Arian controversy of the early church and some contemporary pseudo-Christian cults deviate from the biblical perspective. The heretic Arius and his modern disciples, the Jehovah Witnesses, argue that Yeshua is not eternal. Rather, he was the first created being. So guess what? If God created him, then he's not God. All right? He's a, he may be a God, but he's not God. And that's what the Jehovah Witnesses try to do. On the basis of a flawed and inconsistent interpretation of the Greek text, they try to say, they try to change the wording in John 1 1, say, in the beginning was, the word was a God. But that's totally eisegesis, all right? That's sticking in the text things that, that aren't there. Paul understood very clearly that Yeshua was Yahweh. Look at Philippians 2 5 and 6. He tells the Philippians, this is what's interesting. This is what, this, this text in Philippians 2 is one of the greatest theological texts you'll find in Scripture. Many say it was an early Christian hymn. I love that. Okay? They're singing theology. Okay? But he, but here's what's interesting to me about this text. Paul uses this deep theological text as an illustration. He said, hey, here's what Christ did. Guess what? Have the same attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ. You guys have the same attitude of Christ. What attitude is that? Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't have to let everybody know who he was. He didn't have to grasp onto his, you know, the prerogatives of deity, so to speak. Now, the word existed here is the Greek word huparko. It's a verb that stresses the essence of a person's nature. It's to express the continued state of a thing. It's unalterable, unchangeable. Paul said Yeshua unalterably and unchangeably exists in the form of God. That speaks of pre-existence. And the word form here, morphe, Moulton and Milligan say, morphe is a form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlies it. It refers to the essence or essential being. Yeshua pre-existed in the essence of God. And when Paul uses huparko being and morphe form, he is saying something very specific. He is saying that Yeshua has always existed in the unchangeable essence of the being of Yahweh. Yeshua is God and He always was. This is the heart and soul of the Christian faith. Yeshua is Yahweh. Look what Paul said in Colossians 2.9, For in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Speaking of Yeshua, the word dwells here, comes from the Greek word katikau, and it means to settle down and be at home. The present tense indicates that the essence of deity continually abides at home in Christ. He is fully God forever. The word deity here, theotes, is an ontological word. It means it has the idea of essential nature or essential being. The essential ontological nature of Yeshua is what? Is deity. He's Yahweh. John Eliezer, a.k.a. Lazarus, also writes in 1 John 5.20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding so that we know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, in His Son, Yeshua the Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. The Son of God, Yeshua the Christ, is the true God and eternal life. I want to share with you a quote from David Flusher. He's a devout Orthodox Jew. He's a professor of early Christianity and Judaism of the Second Temple period at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Okay? And he says this, you poor Christians, you wonder why the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God more often. It says it all the time. You just don't understand Jewish thought. That is so profound, so powerful. We read the Bible and we think in our own terms. We don't, we gotta get in the head of first century Judaism to understand scripture because they're writing it. We have to understand what they understand. And here's a Jew saying, you just, you guys don't get it. He claimed it continually. You don't understand Jewish thought. So important, understanding context. Let me give you one more here. In Mark 1.24, this is uh, a demon speaking. The demon says, What do we have to do with you, Yeshua of Nazareth? 
Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Alright? Notice the demon recognizes both Yeshua's humanity, he calls them Yeshua of Nazareth, and his deity, the Holy One of God. Holy One speaks of his deity. And it's interesting to me that here we are, 2,000 years later, the church still arguing about who is Yeshua. The demons got it right. They knew who he was. They knew he was God in the flesh. They knew that and they also understood there was nothing that they could do to keep him from having authority over them. Now the phrase Holy One is used in the Tanakh of Yahweh. Who's the Holy One of Israel? Look at Psalm 78, 40 and 41. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again, they tempted God. They pained the Holy One of Israel. It is Yahweh who is called the Holy One of Israel. And the Holy One, and here we have demons calling Christ the Holy One. It's a clear reference to the deity by no less than demons themselves. They understood who he was. There was no question in their mind. We're the ones, you know, that so often question things. Now, when I say that Yeshua is Yahweh, it's really important that you understand that I'm not talking about modalism. Y'all know what modalism is? Modalism denies the distinction within the Trinity. Alright? Modalism says that God is one, and one minute He's pretending to be the Father, and the next He says, I'm going to be the Son now, and then now I'll be the Spirit. You know, so it's just one person jumping around, playing different parts, basically. That's modalism. Alright? The very first verse of John really destroys modalism. It says the Word was with God. How do you be with yourself? Okay? The theological importance of these words are that they distinguish God the Word from God the Father. In other words, John is telling us that although the Godhead is a Holy One, eternal God, God the Word, and God the Father are not the same person. Look at John 17.25. Yeshua here is praying. O righteous Father. Who's He praying to? Himself? No, this is not modalism. Although the world has not known you, yet I've known you. And these have known that you sent me. So the Son prays to the Father, both of whom are Yahweh. Now the words, was with God, prohibits us from seeing no distinction between the Father and the Word. This with interfers a relationship, an interface, an interaction between two distinct persons. There is a distinction. The Son, the Word, is distinct from the Father. The truth is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all three of the same essence, but they're three separate and distinct beings. The Trinity is not three gods, but it's one God in three persons. I know that's hard to wrap our heads around. So Yeshua is Yahweh. He's distinct from the Father. I got a scholar that I really like, but he continues to say something like, Yeshua was God, but he wasn't. And I'm like, first of all, that violates the law of logic, okay, which is the law of contradiction. You can't A, you can't be A and not A at the same time. So either he's God or he's not God. What the distinction here needs to be made is he is God, he's not the Father, he's the Son. That's the distinction. The distinction between Father and Son, not God or not God, because they're all God. Same essence. Three separate distinct beings. So Yeshua is Yahweh. He's the Messiah. He's the one upon whom God has put His name. He's the second person of the divine trinity. He's the one that the Tanakh, in the Tanakh, led Israel out of Egypt. He's the cloud in the wilderness. He's the rock in the wilderness. He's the one who made the covenants with them. He's the one who Jacob wrestled with. He's the one who spoke to Abraham. He's the one who Daniel saw. He's the one that Gideon dealt with. And on and on. All the theophanies of the Tanakh are theophanies of the Son of God. And that's why the Jews held that there were two powers in heaven. They saw this. They realized this. Unless you believe that I am. You know, there's a lot of controversy today about the Gospel and people arguing, what is it that you have to believe to go to heaven? Some people have lists a mile long. 
I mean, they really do. You know, they keep adding and adding to their list. Well, Yeshua says here, unless you believe that I am, unless you believe that I'm Yahweh, you have to believe that He is God. That's a, that's a critical part of the Gospel. You have to believe that He is God, and as God, He died for your sin debt. Which starts out, let's start here, because the Gospel has to start with, guess what, you have a need. Alright? You have a need. You're dead in trespasses and sins. You're separated from God by your sin. That's where the Gospel starts. You have a need. And guess what? God met that need in His Son. He came, He died on the cross for you to pay your sin debt in full. And if you will trust Him, if you will believe in Him, you will have eternal life. That's the Gospel. I don't think you need to add anything to that. Okay? Well, you have to do... No, you have to do... No. Next week we're going to talk about discipleship. Because in this text, when we get down to the end, he said, hey, guess what? A bunch of people believe. It's like, wow, cool, people believe. And then he said, then Yeshua said to those disciples who believed on him, if you continue my word, then you're my disciple. And you know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And we're going to look at that context because there's a lot of confusion about what's going on there. Uh, and hopefully I'll be able to clear that up, all right? But here's what I want you to get, people. And I think a lot of Christianity misses this today. Belief of the truth. Nothing more and nothing less is what separates the saved from the damned. It's not about what you do. Not about your performance, not about your efforts. What do you believe? Now, are we to live a certain righteous life? Absolutely. But we're talking about the gospel here, and this is bottom line. All right, we're going to fly through the rest of these verses because this, you know, basically that's the just of it here is Yeshua wants them to understand, I am. All right? So they were saying to him, Who are you? <laughs> So Yeshua said, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? Oh my word, you don't get it? Now, as I said at the beginning when we started this message out, this is the most important question you can ask, but I don't think they're asking a question here. Now, D.A. Carson, who I highly respect, he's a, he's a great New Testament scholar. He writes this. The ambiguity bound up with ego imi prompts Yeshua's opponents to ask, who are you? Man, I so disagree with this. I don't think there's any ambiguity. And I go, EME. I think they under, very clearly he's saying, I am. They knew who I am was. I don't think there's ambiguity. I don't think they're saying, what are you saying? No, they got that. Their question could rightly be translated this way. Who do you think you are? Not who are you, but who do you think you are? They were challenging him, not seeking to know the truth about him. After Christ's resurrection, Peter tells the Jews who Christ was. And this is what they knew. Look at this text in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Yeshua the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs. So they were saying, they're not saying, who are you? I say, who do you think you are just because you're going around here raising dead people and calming the sea and, you know, doing all this? Who do you think you are? I'm God. That's just the thing. I've been telling you this from the beginning. In light of all that Christ has done, how could they not understand who he was? Yeshua said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? Now, Yeshua's reply here is really hard to translate from the Greek text. And here's why. It's not a textual issue here, okay? It's not like one manuscript says this, another manuscript says It's not a textual issue. Originally, the Greek manuscripts had no spaces between the words. Everything was a hashtag kind of thing, you know? <laughs> and so, therefore, the Greek letters can be divided in different places to make the words fit the context. Now, the reason there's so many different translations of this verse is not related to manuscript variation. It's related to word division. And here, here are the options, okay? Hote, I have said to you from the beginning. And that's how those translations translate that. But, 
Another option is hoti, two separate words, and it's a Semitic idiom of exclamation that I talk to you at all. In other words, what's the point of me talking to you? You're asking me who I am? You don't get any... I've been saying this from the beginning, you don't get it. You just don't get it. So there's a lot of division here on exactly what he's saying, but and it's grammatically possible to translate Yeshua's reply as a question. In other words, saying, why do I speak to you at all? The NRSV translates that way. This would imply that Yeshua was despairing of being trying to communicate with these Jews. That makes sense in light of chapter 6. Remember in chapter 6, he kept, they keep coming to him and they're, there's, you know, they're bugging him and he keeps sharing the gospel and then he goes, you don't get it because you're not called. You don't get it because you're not chosen. You don't get it because my father didn't give me to you. Let's look at uh, 665. And he was saying, for this reason, I've said to you, no one can come to me. You guys, you know, you, I keep telling you you don't understand. You know why you don't understand? Because no one can come. Unless it's been granted from the Father. And so what he's saying to them, you haven't been granted. That's why you're not coming. That's why you don't get it. You'll never get it. So that's why he's saying, well, why am I speaking to you when you just, you're never going to get this. Verse 26, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things I heard from him, these I speak to the world. Now, the themes of the Father sent me. The Father is true. My teachings are from the Father. I reveal the Father. They're repeated all through this gospel emphasis. That's what he's saying. I'm just delivering to you what the Father has given me. Verse 27. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. This is Lazarus's comment. Okay? An editorial comment here. Oh, by the way, they didn't know he was talking. What? you got to be kidding me. Are the, how blind are they? How dumb are they? They don't get this at all? How is this possible? Well, it's possible because the Bible very clearly says the natural man doesn't get the things of the Spirit. You ever gone out and tried to pick up a radio station with no receiver? It's kind of hard to do. There's waves all out there. You could pick up any kind of channel you want if you have a receiver. The natural man has no spiritual receiver. He can't get it. He doesn't understand it. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, A natural man. A natural man, the word here is natural, sukakos, it means without the Spirit. The man that doesn't have the Spirit of God. He doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> you ever tried to share spiritual things with someone who doesn't have, you know, they're like, huh? What are you talking about? Why doesn't he get them? Because they're foolishness to him. What? A God dying on a cross? That's just ridiculous. He cannot understand them. It's not he will not, he cannot, because they're spiritually appraised. He can't get it. It's impossible for him to get it. The Bible is not something that you on your own ability can understand. Because it's a supernatural book. And unless God opens your eyes, and there's plenty of people who, who don't know the Lord at all. And they study the Bible and they dig this out and they dig that out. And they can bring up good historical facts and they can deal with languages and they can do all this, but they don't know the guy who wrote it. Because they're natural men. And as a natural man, you'll never understand. Until you receive the Spirit of God and are given life by God the Father, you will never get it. He says in verse 28, So Yeshua said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And again, He is not in this text. So He's saying, When you lift me up, you'll understand I'm Yahweh. What? And I can do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father sent me. Okay. When you lift me up, this is an allusion to crucifixion. So how is the crucifixion going to reveal that He is Yahweh? How do they see that in the crucifixion? Well, the Greek word hoopso here for lift up occurs four times in this Gospel. And it combines the idea, and you have to understand this, it combines the idea of crucifixion and exaltation. Because Christ was crucified, He was buried, He rose, and He was exalted. They all go together. Alright? And Lazarus' pattern is to combine two aspects of this in one word. Lift it up, 
describes both the death of Yeshua on the cross, He's lifted up, and it also describes the resurrection and glorification. Because the word lifted up also means exalted. And it's used in the rest of the New Testament for Yeshua being exalted to the right hand of the Father. So He says, when I'm lifted up, you're going to put me on a cross, you're going to put me in the grave, guess what, I'm coming out of that grave. I'm going to defeat the grave, and I'm going to be exalted to the right hand of the Father. When I'm exalted to the right hand of the Father, then you'll know that I am Yahweh. They'll know. They'll know. For Lazarus, it's the whole scope here. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the exaltation. It all focuses on the attention. On God the Father exalting Him. And you'll know I'm He. I think He's saying, when you lift me up, when you crucify me, when you, when you see the resurrection and you see the exaltation, you'll know I'm Yahweh. No doubts then. He uses the title here, Son of Man. This is a self-chosen title because I think the reason is this title has no militaristic or nationalistic implications within rabbinical Judaism. Alright? So Yeshua chooses it because it, it also connects both the humanity and the deity of Christ. A man, I'm God, I'm not your warrior that you look to take over Rome. I'm the Savior. He says, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things that the Father taught me. Alright, basically he's saying what I said in chapter 5. Okay? What I said in chapter 5. The unity of the Father and the Son. Here's what he said in 5. Let me re- review just a couple things. The Son does only what the Father does. 5.19 The Son gives life just as the Father gives life. 5.21 and 26. The Son has the same authority as the Father. Chapter 5 is one of the greatest chapters on the deity of Christ because they're one. The Son has the same authority as the Father. 5.22, 5.27 The Son does nothing by Himself but only what He hears the Father, only what pleases the Father, 5.20. The Son comes in the name of the Father, not in His own name, 5.43. They're equal. There's a unity there. There's a oneness there. He says in 29, And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do those things that are pleasing to Him. Yeshua again affirmed that everything He said came from the authority of the Father. He's not operating independently. All that he said, all that he did was the Father's will, including the cross. It was all part of the plan. There's a total unity here. And then he closes this by saying, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Let me ask you something. Can you say that? Can you say that? Let me ask you this. You think we can live a life that's pleasing to the Father? Yeah, I think we can. I mean, why couldn't we live a life that's pleasing to the Father? Do we lack anything? Do we need something to make us whole or complete? Look what Peter said in 2 Peter 1.3. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us, believers, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. So can we live a life pleasing to the Father? Yeah, we really can. Do we? Not too often. Why? We'd rather do things our way. We'd rather do things that are pleasing in our eyes instead of, you know, if we really love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind and strength, I think we can live a life that pleases Him. I really do. I think our life, the things that we do, the things that come out of our mouth, can be pleasing to the Father. We can live this way. Listen, if you don't believe that, you're defeated. You'll never understand victory in the Christian life if you don't believe you have the ability. You know, if you sin and you say, well, that's just I'm supposed to do that. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you're a son that's been exalted to the family of God by the power of God. You've got to see yourself as who you are and then you can live out who God has called you to be. He's called us to live a life pleasing to Himself And I believe we can do it. I think we fail miserably too often, but I think it has to do with mentality. You've got to start with the right mindset. I'm a child of the King. I am an image bearer of Yahweh. 
put here to bear the image of my Father who all I come in contact with. Man, you start thinking this way, it changes the things you do, the things you say, and all of a sudden it's like every moment you have to have a God consciousness. In other words, God's got to be always in your thought pattern. Always thinking about Him. You know, the Scriptures have to be there. In the mind. You know, that's what Peter says. Through the true knowledge of Him. When you know what He wants, and when you're familiar with it, if you're not reading your Bibles, it's going to be really hard to live a victorious Christian life. Because you're going to forget constantly what you're supposed to do. And if you're reading the Scriptures, you're constantly reminded, this is what God wants for us. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to... You know, you're mad at somebody, and I'll never forgive them. And you read, you know, Ephesians 4.32, Be kind one to another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. Even as God and Christ has forgiven you, and you're like, oh man, that's right, I gotta be. And you, you learn what you gotta do, and you do it! Because it's pleasing to the Father. I really believe, people, that as image bearers, we're called to live a life that shows the world our Father. And there's, there's a big conflict here between Christianity and Islam, okay? You know, people today say, Islam is a religion of peace. Those people are willfully ignorant of the Quran. Okay, read Surah 9. Just read through Surah 9 over and over. Kill the infidel. Unbeliever. You know, it's just unbelievable. Whenever I hear that, I think, you are so ignorant. If you would just read the book. Alright, then what about Christianity though? Read our book. Be kind to one another. Love one another. You know, Think highly, more highly of somebody else than you do of yourself. All over and over and over. The comparison between the two is crazy. But Islam's trying to take over. You know, through violence, through force. And Christianity is just, you know, in this country so dumbed down because we're not being image bearers. You know, we hear voice of the martyrs and we hear these people and the suffering and the persecution they go through. Because they hold their head high and they trust and they walk with the Lord. And we need to learn to do that. And man, I think it's the coolest thing in the world what they're doing in North Korea. You know, sending balloons over there. Who would have thought of that? Let me fill a helium balloon, tie a Bible to it. Okay, let King Young, what Young, who Young, do something about that. Okay, what's he going to shoot down all these balloons? Good, we want them landing on the ground anyway. You know, it's just amazing, people. We got to be... I love that ingenuity, okay? Our calling is to get the gospel out. Let's do it. We don't have to worry like the North Koreans do about our lives, and yet we still don't get it out. All right, um, I got to quit preaching and let's move on here. I could stay on this subject for a while, okay? Because I really believe, people, I believe we're called to please God in this life. And I believe we can do it. But I believe too often we don't. All right, he closes with this verse. Actually, the text, this is the beginning of a separate section, but I, I want you to see here that, you know, I don't want to end on a, a note that, okay, you know, this is a big argument with these Jews. None of these Jews are getting it. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. They're like, wow, he's Yahweh. He's saying he's Yahweh. And you know what? Man, I saw him raise the dead. I was at a funeral Yeshua came to. He stopped the coffin and said, get out of that coffin. And the guy got out. I think he, I think he is God. And he believed. After this exchange, Lazarus tells us people believe. And this note of belief becomes a transition between this and the next text. Now, as we get into the next text next week, I want you to see, here's my belief. And I want you to look at this text and maybe do some little studying on it before we get there. He's going to talk to his disciples. He's going to say, he's going to address the ones who believe. If you continue in my word, then you're my disciples. And I think there's a distinction between a Christian and a disciple. I think all Christians are called to be disciples. I don't think all Christians are. And I think disciples are pleasing to the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for the opportunity to look at your word. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you that you have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And that we can live in a way that brings glory and honor to you. That we can be a light, Father, to the world we live in. Help us to do that, Lord. Guide us by your Spirit. 
may we be receptive to the Spirit's leading that we may truly live a life that brings glory to You. Amen.